I'll demonstrate a safe pose, but what's most important is for you to be able to get a felt sense of yourself as you do the practice. That way we can address the dissociative effects of trauma, right? So you've got the dissociative effects of trauma, and then you've got a male population that, you know, incarcerated is typically armored. If you go into prison, you got to put your armor on to protect you. And now we're asking you to find some fluidity in your body and to begin to, begin to you know, break down that. That was James Fox, and this is Mentally Flexible. Welcome to Mentally Flexible, where we have meaningful conversations to help you build mental flexibility. I'm Tom Parks. I'm a licensed psychotherapist, and in each episode, I'll be talking to people who inspire me most on topics related to psychology, mental health, and creativity. My hope is that through these conversations, you'll better understand yourself, others, and the world around you. Thanks for being here, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. My guest today is James Fox, founding director of Prison Yoga Project. I met James several years ago when I attended one of his trainings to learn more about trauma-informed yoga and how it can be implemented in prisons. James is a pioneer in this area as he began teaching yoga to incarcerated individuals in San Quentin Prison in California in 2002. He ultimately went on to found the Prison Yoga Project, and it has really blossomed since then. He has trained thousands of teachers who have replicated his methodology in 28 states and many other countries around the world. He's also the author of Yoga, A Path for Healing and Recovery, which James makes available free of charge to any incarcerated individual who requests a copy. It's been sent to over 33,000 people in prison. In this episode, we explore the early years of Prison Yoga Project, how James has worked through his racial and cultural differences, how you can make yoga trauma-informed, how to be a witness to another person's suffering, the path of karma yoga, the difference between being a helper and being of service, and James's vision for the future of prison reform. You can learn more about Prison Yoga Project in the show notes, and if this work resonates with you, please consider donating to the cause. And as always, thanks for all your support. It's been so great to hear from some of you and know that you're finding value in these conversations. I look forward to continuing this process together. I hope you all have a wonderful day, and let's get into the interview with James Fox. Thanks again for doing this, James. I'm super excited to talk to you. Happy to be with you, Tom. Why don't we start by giving listeners just a summary of who you are and what you do? Sure. Uh, I'm James Fox, and I'm the founding director of the Prison Yoga Project. And uh, we bring yoga practices into prisons all over the U.S. and beyond. And we also provide resources, uh, yoga resources, yoga and mindfulness resources for incarcerated people, meaning... Mm books and other kinds of materials, uh, well, our own books, but other kinds of materials so that people can practice yoga and mindfulness while they're incarcerated. Mm -hmm. Great. And for context for listeners, James and I met um, several years ago now. I was a part of one of his uh, teacher trainings to learn about trauma-sensitive yoga and how that could be brought into um, prisons and detention centers. Yeah. So, which was one of the best weekends of my life, to be honest. I really changed my life. Thanks. Thank you. You know, it's, it was interesting for me where I never really, um, I didn't end up going on to implement any um, yoga practices within prisons, which I would love to one day eventually. But even just having that experience where I learned about how um, yoga could be used to heal trauma and how it could be done in a trauma sensitive way. And to, it really changed the way that I worked with clients going forward. So I'm really fortunate for that. Well, there's, there, there's a fluidity um, of people who are incarcerated and then they get out into society 
They may have difficulty re-entering. They may end up being homeless. They may end up needing certain kinds of health care, certain kinds of mental health care. So learning some of these trauma-informed skills for working with people transfers out to public. And we're, yeah. and, we're, and we're seeing it more and more as we address the social inequities of society, which, of course, is a very contemporary concern and a very contemporary topic in our country right now. Uh, maybe there's maybe there's more awareness. Maybe there's certainly there's more information that's available about these inequities. And. We're working in environments, when you're working in a prison environment, you're working in an environment that has a concentration of the economic, the social, the racial inequalities in this country. Um, And so it's really important for us, and it's become even, I, I would say, even more important for us from the time that you did the training with me to educate people about these inequities and their relationship with these inequities to really do the self-investigation, the self-exploration of implicit biases, for instance. Um, Because most people who are in in the yoga world um, are white, um, relatively privileged, and they haven't had an ex- they haven't had a lot of experience with people who are coming from these uh, backgrounds of of marginalization, um, be them cultural uh, or any other kinds of differences. So there's the yoga part um, of what it is that we're doing in terms of providing the possibility for benefits from a yoga practice, but there's the relational aspect of our work, which is equally important because if we can't establish that level of trust with people and that level of authentic connection with people, we could, we we could avail them of all the, the benefits of yoga that are possible, but it won't land. Hmm. Yeah, totally. Yeah. How have you navigated that and how have things developed for you personally from your times? I know you've been doing work in the prisons for what, like 15 years plus? Yeah, it's it's been about 20 years now. Yeah. Yeah. What does that look like from the beginning of kind of being an outsider and trying to integrate into the prison system and earn trust um, with your differences? You know, originally I drew on my own personal background um, of growing up in an urban environment. I grew up in Chicago, um, multiracial environment, however, a very segregated environment. Um, you know, Chicago is very well known for having all these pockets of the Ukrainians live in this neighborhood, uh, the Lithuanians live in this neighborhood, the Polish live in this neighborhood. The blacks live in these neighborhoods, the Puerto Ricans live in these neighborhoods, and the whites live in these neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. And there has been more integration since the time that I grew up, but it's still a relatively segregated city, like a lot of major cities in the country. You know, I think about Boston, um, and I think about, I think about San Francisco, which, of course, has become a city that really is for the privilege because of the cost of living. But I had experience of going into these different parts of the city, um, primarily by virtue of the fact that I played sports when I was in high school. So I had exposure to those kinds of things. And I had exposure to my own biases around those issues. Early early on in the days that I was teaching yoga, I was was doing this, I was being sponsored by a restorative justice organization that was – bringing a major rehabilitation program into San Quentin that then expanded into California state prisons. And as a result of that, I became trained as a violence prevention facilitator, 
meaning working with groups of men at San Quentin, usually for at least a year, in dealing with issues of, of violence. And I also became a facilitator of what's called victim offender education uh, in restorative justice principles and practices. Um, and so I was able to witness and really absorb the deep issues of trauma, of developmental trauma that people who were incarcerated were experiencing, and the deep issues of trauma that people of color uh, have experienced in this culture. And understanding those and, and developing empathy for those really opened me up to a much more understanding and empathetic relationship with these people who I didn't have much exposure to, certainly not on a level of where we were really dropping down into these core issues, um, which I'm sure, you know, as a therapist, you can definitely relate to this. Um, And doing it in a group setting where, and, and being very cautious about, you know, I'm not the person coming in as the hierarchical person, but I'm coming in to facilitate a group with a clear understanding that everybody benefits from this, including myself. I mean, it was very much a major intention that it was a very democratic circle. We all teach and we all learn in this circle as, you know, as a way of establishing trust. So I learned a great deal from that. And it, and it definitely influenced the way that I was teaching yoga and the way that I was applying yoga and other mindfulness practices to deal with these issues of trauma. So it was a real pragmatic, real practical application of yoga. You know, we can study trauma-sensitive yoga and trauma-informed yoga, but unless we've either had a direct experience ourselves with trauma or been deeply exposed to those people who have had experiences of trauma, I don't know how effective we can be. And I think this is, again, something that we really stress when we're training people who are involved with the Prison Yoga Project to have this this understanding, whether you come from a background of trauma or you don't, to have this understanding and to be able to develop this empathetic approach. Mm. I'm really curious what it was like for you on your very first day going in was traumatizing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, do you remember it? Is it still? Oh, yeah, very clearly, very clearly, yeah. Yeah, can you tell me a little I bit about it? I was it? as prepared as I possibly could be, but I went in alone. I wasn't escorted in by anybody else because, like, I guess the people that I was working with trusted me, okay, you can handle this. And I'm sure I, I portrayed that confidence, but at the same time, I was nervous. Mm. And I literally, you know, in terms of, you know, you go into a prison environment and it's a totally uh, alien environment to what we experience out here on the outside, particularly we yogis and, you know, the, we yoga practitioners. It's not like walking into a, a yoga studio. <laughs> you know, you have, to, you have to go through all the checkpoints and deal with uh, staff. And, and it wasn't like people welcomed me with with open arms. I mean, there hadn't been a program at San Quentin. There had never been a yoga program at San Quentin. So most of the custody staff looked at me like, you know, who's this guy coming in here with a yoga mat under his arm? You know, even though the very top of administration had, had approved it, when you get down to the sergeants and the correctional officers, it's brand new to them. Some guy walks in with a yoga mat saying, I'm here to teach yoga. Yeah, and we also have to keep in mind, too, that this is what you said maybe 20 years ago, where yoga wasn't such a staple in the culture at that no, time either. No, no, and definitely not in prisons. Um, yeah. So there was that issue. And then I literally got buzzed out of a security checkpoint out onto a yard at San Quentin, a yard filled with incarcerated men you know, who were working out on parallel bars and doing push-ups and sit-ups on the yard and everything like that. 
And here I walk right out onto the yard because I had to go on to the yard to get to the class where I was going to teach yoga. And so then there was that gauntlet to go through and, you know, whistles and cat calls about what's that under your arm, sweetheart, and things like that. So when I finally got into the room and then there was, of course, was the was the emotionality of having a brand new group of people and introducing yoga to them. So I think in the beginning, about six guys showed up and I, I used to say they were the six bravest men in San Quentin uh, who ventured into the yoga class and um, and they stayed with it. And like everything in a prison environment if something good is going on, it spreads by word of mouth. Yeah. And so, you know, some of the most immediate effects that a yoga practice has had on incarcerated people is better night's sleep. That's probably number one, better night's sleep. Mm-hmm. And, you know, getting the feedback, man, after that yoga class, I had the best night's sleep in memory of being incarcerated. Um. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, very gradually it becomes, you know, that chronic pain that I've had in my hip or in my shoulder is starting to dissipate. I find that I'm not so reactive. And, you know, these are the typical, you know, kind of like top line anecdotal feedback that we get. Uh, And then studies that have been done on our program bear this out, you know, emotional stability, calmer temperament, um, improved rational decision making, relief of of chronic pain so the program spread by word of mouth and so i started with one class and then that class got filled and then i then i began another class with another group of people and that class got filled and then i started a third class and brought another teacher in to teach that class and that class got filled by the way that was a class for military veterans incarcerated military veterans because we want there was a there was a guy who was incarcerated who was a former Marine Corps captain who had started this program called Veterans Healing Veterans from the Inside Out. Mm. And he wanted to include an embodiment component to the cognitive behavioral work that they were doing. And he asked me, would I start a yoga program for his group? So that became the third program. And then we did a program for aging prisoners with mobility impairments. And so anyway, pre-COVID, we had five classes at San Quentin, uh, but we have classes in jails and prisons throughout California and in 18 other states. So we have about 120 programs in the U.S. now. We have a very vibrant chapter in Mexico where we're in two of the, two of the major federal prisons, the, one of which El Chapo escaped from. Um, we have programs in some European countries. Uh, we have a, we have a a program in Australia. Uh, we have collaborative relationships with prison yoga programs in France and in Israel where we've done training for their facilitators. So they weren't, they weren't using a standardized trauma informed approach. And so they, they, uh, um, they, they contacted us and said, would you please do a training for us? So we went to France and we went to Israel to provide that training. Um, so it's gradually, it's, it is spread. And, um, and we're challenged to keep up with yeah. what's been created. It's sort of like what you're saying, even in that, those very early years when something works, people talk about it and it spreads. So it's sort of, it seems like the momentum of that has picked up outside of San Quentin and then out of greater California and then throughout the United States. And now it's really moving globally. I think a big influential factor was I wrote a book, which I, I know you're aware of yoga, a path for healing and recovery that I had originally written for my students at San Quentin well, actually, I, it was going to be a brochure. And then I thought, well, if I'm going to do this, why don't I do this for any prisoner who's interested in yoga? Yeah. Why don't I make it available to them free of charge if they contact us? 
and they want this. And so it's a 104 page book, kind of a booklet. It's a small size booklet because in order to send books into prisons, they have to be soft cover. They have to be small. You know, we started sending the book out in 2010. We've sent 33,000 copies to prisoners who've written to us asking for a copy of the book. Wow. So in a certain way, that that led the charge of planting seeds in, in, in prisons, planting seeds for yoga in prisons. And then being able to follow up going, okay, well, this book is in such demand, then what I need to do is I need to start training teachers who can start going into jails and prisons and teach. So then that started happening in 2011. And we've trained more than 3,000 people. And, 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 and particularly in the last three or four years, Tom, it's not only been yoga teachers, it's been social workers, uh, therapists, healthcare workers who have a familiarity with yoga. Maybe they practice yoga, but they've been interested in, well, what is it that you're doing in a yoga practice that I might be able to use in my cognitive behavioral therapy work that I'm doing? Yes. It oftentimes comes down to maybe some simple movement and, and breathing practices. But we've we've even had defense attorneys take the class, public defenders take the training because of their interest in that. Yeah. So it's really expanded in terms of in terms of its interest. And and uh it's and I think as a result of that, we're not the only ones doing in prison yoga, but we're the only national organization that's doing uh, in prison yoga programs. Yeah. And then there's all these little ripples too, like you're, you're saying that go beyond just somebody implementing a program in a prison. Like for myself, I spent a couple of years doing um, trauma consulting in juvenile detention centers and even just opening up the conversation with some of the officers there around the value of some different, even just single poses to help with um, some of the youth there or thinking about asking other people to come in and offer mindfulness or yoga practices. So there's like all these ripples that spread out that maybe go unseen, but they make a difference. Well, that's another frontier that hopefully we'll, we'll get to uh, in my time. Uh-huh. And that is being able to work with staff, being able to work with custody staff. We have been able to do that in a couple of different places. And when we've been able to do it, it's been well received. Um, so we're hoping that we're going to have the opportunity to do more of that. We've, we've gathered together uh, a cohort of people who are first responders or people who actually are work on, you know, in prison staff. We've gathered a cohort together to start basically advising on how would we create a program for that purpose. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Would you, would you be willing to share a little bit about, I'll kind of leave it open to you either what makes uh, yoga trauma sensitive in the way that you teach it. And then maybe a parallel thing here is like, how do the practices of yoga and the lessons learned in there transfer outside of the mat? I know you talked a lot about those things too, that it's beyond just the physical uh, benefits or getting a good night's sleep, but there's a lot of deeper things that can happen from um, a prisoner engaging in yoga. So I know I just threw a lot at you, but feel free to take it where you want. I think the first part when you say um, Teaching And we call it trauma-informed yoga, um, basically because David Emerson does what's called trauma-sensitive yoga, and we respect the work that he does. And it is somewhat different from our approach to yoga. So we call it trauma-informed yoga. And it begins with how, begins with number one, how we conduct ourselves personally when we go into a prison to teach, mm. and a mindfulness about that. Um, something that we call checking ourselves in terms of how we meet people, um, how we maintain a certain level of integrity and consistency in how we meet people. And that goes for both staff and the participants in our program. 
Um, so being very much aware that that has an immediate impact, yeah. particularly when you're coming in and you're from a different you're from a different race and that could be a triggering thing altogether. So there's a good deal of focus and, and training on that. Um, then related to that is uh, the language that you use and uh, how that might differ from a public class. And that's particularly related to uh, commanding rather than inviting mm. because you're working with a population that has very few choices in their lives yes. and very, very few agency they're confined. The, the most we can do to, to kind of infuse a sense of freedom into the way that we teach uh so languaging, so when it feels right to you, if it feels right to you, um, this might not be for you, and that's okay. So providing alternatives to different poses and things, the poses that we choose to incorporate in the practice. Um, and it, it doesn't necessarily mean that the practice is non-dynamic, but it's like how how you structure the dynamic part of it in a, in a very kind of, in a very conscious uh, way. So a lot of things, a lot of things like moving slowly, and that doesn't mean you're moving in slow motion either, but it's so often that you go to a public yoga class and if the person's a, in a Yengar teacher and or an Ashtanga teacher or a Vinyasa flow teacher or whatever they are, a Bikram teacher, you go there and you follow their protocol. And they're trained to have a commanding presence. Do this, do that. This is, you know, this is how you do this pose. Oh, you're out of alignment. So this is, that's all wrong. You're out of alignment. Or let me come over here and adjust you. No, 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 no. Our whole focus is feel what you feel while you're in the pose. Attempt to feel what you feel while you're in the pose. Because we recognize that almost everybody who comes to our class has hidden injuries, be them physical, psychological injuries. So it's up to you to feel through what you feel. Don't be so concerned about a perfect pose or what somebody else is doing. I'll demonstrate a safe pose, but what's most important is for you to be able to get a felt sense of yourself as you do the practice. That way we can address the dissociative effects of trauma, right? And particularly yeah. when, so you've got the dissociative effects of trauma, and then you've got a male population that, you know, incarcerated is typically armored. If they go into prison, yeah. you know, if you go into prison, you got to put your armor on to protect you. And now we're asking you to find some fluidity in your body and to begin to, begin to you know, break down that. So mm -hmm. a great deal, I mean, that's where the sensitivity of, of trauma sensitive, a great deal of sensitivity around that, a great deal of sensitivity about how we cue poses, a sensitivity about how we set up the room. Um, in as, as best a trauma-informed uh, way as possible. Um, With that, um, you know, setting up the room like we did in our training of not having anybody behind you and everybody in a circle. If you can do it, you know, if, if, yeah. if the space allows you to do it, that's ideal. Um, yeah. It's just another trauma-informed uh protocol or that you as the as the instructor as the facilitator position yourself by the door so everybody who's looking at you can see if anybody comes into the room that's just one of the physical one of the logistical things about it yeah and it's it it's a constant evolution tom i mean you know it's like it's it's not a done deal we're constantly yeah. learning as, as we continue to do this work and how insidious 
you know, developmental trauma, early in life trauma can be. <clears throat> and then you've got people in a traumatic environment. I call it trauma on simmer. You've got people mm-hmm. who come from backgrounds of trauma and they're in an environment where there's trauma on simmer. So understanding that when there's a lack of safety, predictability, and control, the situation is ripe for trauma, and understanding how much safety, predictability, and control do these people who are coming to this class have, how do we structure the entire environment, the class, and the way we teach to that understanding? Um, And it it boy, it's a process, and and it's 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 really you know a lot of people say oh I'd really like to teach in in a jail or a prison, and it's like okay I understand that why yeah and are you really prepared? Number one, are you really prepared to do your own work to? Prepare yourself to even teach yoga in an environment like that. Yeah. Um, and then are you prepared to kind of completely shift your, your yoga teacher training? Because we're not going mm-hmm. into yoga philosophy and things like that. You know, we're, we're taking a very practical approach to applying aspects of yoga and mindfulness and and other embodiment practices to deal with these issues. And if we, by the way, if we start with the recognition, if we just start with the simple recognition that we're addressing stress, anxiety, depression, hopelessness, all these major emotional issues that people who are incarcerated are dealing with, we know that underneath that layer is the earlier in life trauma. So those issues of stress, anxiety, depression, hopelessness only re-stimulate those original unresolved issues of trauma. Mm-hmm. Do you, when you're in, integrated in the prisons and doing these classes, do you form strong relationships or bonds with the people in your classes? You know, it's... We, particularly when you do trainings with jails and prisons, they're very clear about you've got to have very distinct boundaries in working with your students. And that's, that's, even, that's even more true of women teaching men. And mo- most mm-hmm. of our teachers are women who are teaching men. It's, if, you're, if, you're doing, if you're doing the work... What? There's no way to avoid that. <laughs> yeah. If you're sincere, if you have a heart connection to what it is that you're doing, there's no way to avoid that. And there's got to be a boundary. You know, it's important to keep a boundary, but at the same time, it's, in, it's important to make those authentic connections. And it could be as simple as being a very clear, present witness. Because what happens is if trust is developed, then oftentimes people who are involved in the program, they tell you about their life stories. They tell you about the issues that they're dealing with while they're incarcerated. And it's not a, we're not therapists. We're not there to fix anything. However, we do have the opportunity to be a witness to their pain and suffering and to simply be able to say, man, I feel you. I really feel you. I can imagine how difficult that must be. And that in and of itself, just to have somebody who's willing to listen to what they have to say, take it in, empathize with them, and drop it. And no, yeah. okay, I'm not going to go, I'm not going to become a therapist. I'm not going to become, that establishes deep connections with people. Yeah. And I have the opportunity that people, a number of my former students stay in touch with me when they get out. And then when that happens, I love it. then it's like, okay, let's be real with each other. Now we're out. Yeah. You're out. You're asking me for support. I'll be 
as much in support of you as I possibly can. Still understanding, I can't fix your life. I'm not going to fix your life. But I can be a mentor, I can be a supporter for you, and I can be there for you. Yeah. Yeah. I'm imagining that once you, through all this work that you do and getting to know these incarcerated individuals on a deeper level and you clearly see how much the uh, trauma and socioeconomic and racial issues all play into that position they're in. And then there's this other greater cultural narrative around demonizing people in prisons. That must be a really um, interesting or complicated tension to sit in, in the work that you do. Yeah. I, I, I think, you know, we have like these, primary objectives for what it is that we do, which is very important, particularly in dealing with these institutions and being able to say to them, this is how what it is that we do fits into rehabilitation. This is why, this is why we feel that it would be very valuable for you to have a yoga program. And then we understand from the work that we do that there are all these other layers of things that are going on. And, and you know, one of them is destigmatizing who prisoners are, because the media has created prisoners as animals, as people who can't be trusted. And and the system does that too. The system says they're the bad guys, we're the good guys. In reality, prisoners are a microcosm of society. They're, they're, They're people who have struggled with the same socioeconomic, racial issues in inequities that are in society and they end up in prison. And so, and and particularly from a yoga perspective, and this is where anybody who's gotten deeply into yoga and understands the whole principle of non-duality, that if they're suffering, I'm suffering. Yeah. And... And of course, this is such a has been such a big issue the last few years with this lack of compassion, this lack of empathy for people who are suffering, this this willful uh, indifference to the suffering of people. And all major religions teach the opposite. You know, be it. Judaism, be it Islam, be it Christianity, they all teach. That's another myself, that, that the, the true path, the true spiritual path is to treat people as I would treat myself. Well, then that brings up, well, how do you treat yourself? <laughs> yeah, true. So it's like, okay, well, can you treat yourself with kindness? and love, and then can you spread that out? But, you know, these are the, these are the deeper meanings of, of, of a dedicated yoga practice, uh, you know, that, you know, the benefits, the deep benefits of, of really engaging in a yoga practice. It sounds like this is a, you have a deep spiritual connection to the work that you do. Is that is that a motivating force or something that energizes you in in all the work that you've done over the past however many years? Yeah, I try not to make that a big public thing, um, but it's uh, it's the path of karma yoga. It's the path of service, and if you look if you look at the if you look at some of the ancient texts that when they talk about yoga, they talk about it as a, as a deeper step into the practice of yoga and into a spiritual practice. The, The Buddhists talk, talk about service and talk about karma yoga as one's Dharma. And that, and, and that it's a pathway toward self realization. And like I said, I don't make a big deal about it, but it's my life. I mean, you know, I made a choice when I, 33 years ago, 
I made a choice because of the benefits that I was experienced from it, that it was my path. And I could draw from my previous life experiences, such as growing up a Catholic and going to Catholic schools. I could draw from that experience and incorporate it into my understanding of yoga and spirituality in a much more alive way. So yeah, in that regard, definitely. And like I said, Tom, I don't, I don't speak about that that much, but yeah, from a personal standpoint, um, it makes so much sense to me and it keeps, and it keeps, it keeps karma yoga, you know, yoga in action and being involved in social justice issues and things like that and applying yoga for that purpose keeps me actively involved, keeps me active in that regard. Yeah. I mean, I know from my own experience and I see this replicated in you and many other people that I talk to or read about, there's almost this inevitable process that unfolds when you start to come into contact with your own suffering and heal that. And then there's this like yearning that comes out of that to want to use that to help other people. It almost seems like it's an innate drive rather than something you have to like work to be a part of your life. Right. Yes. And I think it's very important to understand the distinction. And once again, this is one of the great teachings of karma yoga, the distinction between being a helper and being of service. Mm, Yeah. Explain that. I remember this from the training. Right. Um, So when you see yourself as a helper, you see yourself as a helper and that people need your help. Yeah. So you immediately set up this kind of a structure of a hierarchical structure of, okay, I'm the helper, I'm the teacher, and you're the one who needs help rather than meeting people where they are and understanding this is a mutual, this is a mutual beneficial experience. I've got some tools and skills that I've learned in my life from yoga, mindfulness, from my own life that I'd like to share with you because I've experienced the healing benefits of it. And I'm real interested in what you have to offer. Um, And that's being of service. That's meeting people. And the other thing, another distinction about that is being unattached to an outcome. Yes. So a helper is like, okay, I'm the helper. And if I don't help people, if they don't end up being helped, I'm a failure. Mm. That's the quickest route to burnout. Like rather than, I'm simply doing the best I can to be of service. And it's not that I don't care, but I'm not doing this because I expect an outcome from it. If somebody experiences healing benefits from it, um, fantastic. And what I've learned is (laughs) this is really interesting because I'm being healed. Yes. I feel like I'm being healed from this interaction of being of service, that it fulfills me in a way. And then this this comes back to your question about spiritual development, right? Um, of really being in union with our sisters and brothers. And this yeah. is the great, ah, this is the great hope that I think a lot of us have for this culture that we live in, we know it's possible. We know that it's possible from my experience. Could it possibly extend out into the broader community and into the culture? So I know it's Mm -hmm. an idealism, but it, it, it's something I'm unwilling to let go of because I've seen the results. I've seen the outcome. It's really inspiring to hear you talk about this. If you were, let's say I had a magic wand and you could get one significant change done in prison reform, Mm. what would you, what would you do? Oh, wow. That's a big one. 
I would put a tremendous, you know, there are people who, who, who are very much in favor of, of abolishing prisons and jails and things like that. It's almost like abolishing the police, you know, defunding police. I don't think that's possible. You know, if you look back, not to divert too far from your question, I'll get back to it. I just finished reading a book called Empire of the Summer Moon that goes back to the U.S. Army's war against indigenous peoples in this country in the 1800s. And it goes Mm -hmm. into the history of indigenous peoples. And what shocked me so much is that we human beings, particularly men, have been harming each other for infinity, forever. And to expect all of a sudden that's going to disappear and change overnight. So I think, number one, really being serious about rehabilitation so that when people are incarcerated, they're being provided with the kinds of effective programs that allow them to transform their lives and transform themselves so that it's a real therapeutic opportunity that they're not just going to prison to be punished mm-hmm. and that they're there. We know that there are effective programs. There are effective rehabilitation programs. Many of them are innovative programs. They're not the off the shelf kinds of programs. They're the kind of innovative programs that lots of people have developed to help people with behavioral change. Those could be applied to every prison system so that much more of the budget, for instance, California Department of Corrections, the state prison system in in California, their annual budget is $11 billion. $11 billion they spend on their 33 state prisons. 1% of that budget is allocated toward rehabilitation. Yet they call themselves California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. Well, that's unbelievable. Yeah. And I think that's true of most correctional systems throughout this country. So imagine just if you allocated 10% of that budget to rehabilitative programming. We're talking about a billion dollars that you would be allocating toward rehabilitative programming. The effect that that would have on recidivism, people returning to prison, the effect that that would have on recidivism in terms of lowering lowering the rate of recidivism, the effect that that would have on returning people to society, which with much improved life skills, come on, it's a no brainer. But the problem is, Our system of justice in this country is based on punishment. Punishment is equated with justice. But we have a 65 to 70 percent recidivism rate in this country after three years of incarceration. So it's a failure. So my biggest change would be I would I would shift the mission and the focus of of the mandate of prisons in this country to rehabilitation. And I would allocate the resources toward that. That would just, instead of, yeah. 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 Instead of paying lip service to it. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. When that statistic you just gave, does that make you cynical that about the broader intentions of actually wanting people to be rehabilitated? No, no, it doesn't make me cynical. Um, I, I, you know, as as uh, dramatic as it is, I can only say <clears throat> that I've seen and experienced changes in the last twenty years that I've been doing this work, mm-hmm. and I don't know if we've reached a tipping point yet. Um, but I do see that there's been progress. 
there certainly has been progress made in California toward rehabilitation. And there's some other bright spots uh, around the country. Not many, but a few. Um, yeah, no, I, I don't feel cynical about it. Um, I, I think maybe sometimes I feel hopeless about it. <laughs> but uh, what's most frustrating is those of us who've done this work, who have brought innovative practices in for rehabilitative value, have seen the results of it. Yeah. Know that you can cross these cultural boundaries, that you can, you can establish authentic relationships, you can, you can bring about these transformative effects with the, with the proper services. Well, that's a beautiful way to end there. And I want to thank you on behalf of the greater community here, because you've done such amazing things for the prison, for prisoners and prison systems. And you've blossomed this organization of prison yoga project to uh, across borders. And it's just a beautiful thing to watch. And that training that I went to that you gave was really pivotal in my life. So I thank you personally as well. Thank you too, Tom. It's really, it's been really nice to reconnect with you and have this time together. Yeah. Yeah. I hope we can do it again in the future. I hope so too. Yes, I know. I'll never know. I can close my eyes, take a deep breath, and try to open my soul. Oh, yes, I know. I'll never know. But I can close my eyes, take a deep breath, and try to open my soul. Oh, yes, I know. I'll never know. But I can close my eyes, take a deep breath, and try to open my soul.